0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's the energetic coating dries to give a nice, adherent film. Gosh, that sounds like just what we've got, a nice, adherent film. A paint, but an explosive paint. <laughs> This is not like ordinary paint, folks. Uh, this stuff is, uh, I will show you, very highly energetic. Why, you could have somebody go in and paint this on. Uh, he would just think it's ordinary paint, probably rather thick, and it would be quite safe until it dried.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Stephen Jones. Today's show, Ground Zero Evidence of High-Tech Explosives. Dr. Stephen Jones was professor of physics at Brigham Young University for 22 years. He was principal investigator for experimental muon-catalyzed fusion for the Department of Energy Division of Advanced Energy Projects. In September of 2005, Dr. Jones presented his views on the collapse of the World Trade Center towers and World Trade Center 7 at a BYU seminar and published his paper, Why indeed did the World Trade Center buildings collapse? He retired from Brigham Young University in January 2007 amid controversy surrounding his scientific work on the physical evidence of controlled demolition at the World Trade Center on September 11th. Project Censored lists his 9-11 research among the top mainstream media censored stories of 2007. His most recent scientific article, co-written with eight other authors, was published in April of 2009 in the Open Chemical Physics Journal titled Active Thermitic Material Discovered in Dust from the 9-11 World Trade Center Catastrophe. On May 1, 2009, Dr. Jones gave a presentation in Davis, California. What in the world is high-tech explosive material doing in the dust clouds generated on 9-11, 2001? Dr. Stephen Jones.
1: It's a pleasure to be back in uh, Davis. It's been quite an experience for me, as you might uh, imagine, to study this, the events of 9 11, and to meet with uh, thousands of people discussing this. Now, let me tell you something, and that is uh, some uh, rather threatening remarks that I received from a fellow. And uh, if you're here tonight, Martin, uh, please introduce yourself. That would be interesting to us all. i <laughs> never met him. But he sent emails to me and to administrators at uh, the university where I was, uh, uh, had continuing status, which is the equivalent of tenure. Um, and then here's what he said to myself and others. I'm uh, quoting from... Uh, s- several emails then. The first of which came about, it was about two or three days after my paper first came up on the internet, which would be uh, early November of 2005, right in there. And immediately I'm getting these emails. The publication of this article, my first paper, and it's in the Journal of 9 11 Studies now, is one place. It was published more formally in another venue. The publication of this article can be stopped, and I have the context to make this happen. You need to give this very serious consideration. This is an issue that is more important than any individual career. I had the impression he was referring to my career when he said that. As painful as it may seem now, he is wanting me to pull my paper and just discontinue. And that would be painful, sure. Perhaps it may be less painful than could occur after publication. That sounded a bit like a threat to me. And uh, I will say this. Uh, My paper was published formally uh, in August of 2006. Approximately two weeks later, maybe three, I was put on administrative leave. I don't really know fully why and um, shortly thereafter, encouraged to accept early retirement. That's probably all I want to say about that painful. It was painful, of course. The administrative leave was a very much a shock to me. I have learned, he wrote long before that, to appreciate the value of silence, even in the case of superior data and information. You see, I discussed with him. He asked some questions. I answered them. He said, it doesn't really matter. Silence is what we want from you or you will lose your career he made good and he bragged to a student who wrote to him Utah Valley University student found this guy emailed him and this fellow Martin responded and said that he was responsible he claimed he was individually responsible for my being uh, dismissed in that way from BYU and uh, furthermore you know he claimed these government contacts and all. I don't know, really, because I don't know what <laughs> went on behind the scenes. But look, this information, there is an effort to suppress it. Can I make that clear? I, I think uh, that's becoming clear. And now I want to go to the dust. So we're leading in then to the uh, discussion of the red great chips. The dust that was generated, we all saw it. And here's a photo this Enormous quantities, tens of thousands of tons of dust generated during the collapse of these uh, three skyscrapers. Uh, The dust was tested by scientists immediately, uh, very quickly, and they found that it was very dangerous. For example, Greg Swayze of the U.S. Geological Survey said, Tests revealed the dust to be extremely alkaline pH of 12.1 out of 14. And that, some of it was as caustic as liquid drain cleaner. This is why you you, know, you don't want to breathe this stuff in. You don't even want to kick it up and, you know, breathe that in. You need something to characterize the dust. And we have found something more now that can identify the dust. It's these red-gray chips that I'll be discussing. So now, what we did is to request samples of dust from citizens living in New York City, uh, one fellow, Frank uh, D'Alessio, collected a sample and these uh, three other samples. So this sample was collected, and we have his testimony of how he collected this dust 10 minutes after the collapse of the North Tower. This cannot be contaminated by cleanup operations, which did not begin 10 minutes after the collapse, you know, of the tower. <laughs> it's just great, he collected this. And we got a sample of that. Another sample, one of these was collected the next day. A window had been left open and this dust had collected inside. And then the individual collected the dust. And so, you know, we have the chain of custody on all of these. And you know, I traveled in the presence of witnesses to collect a dust sample. We have other dust samples sent directly to other scientists. They see the same thing. It's red gray chips, okay? It's not me. By the way, I have no idea how to fabricate this material. You'll see it's a highly engineered material. So I do not know how. I didn't make it. I don't know how to do it either. Like the fellow in France, uh, Frédéric-Henri-Couanier, he has found these uh, red-gray chips as well. And his sample was sent by somebody, a collector, you know, an individual citizen of New York City I'd never even heard of. I mean, but he sent, somehow it was arranged and there are people helping now getting these samples out there. Now one of the things we wanted to do was to check for consistency between the different samples. I'll show you that coming right up. Uh, Here's some views of the dust. Here's a first view then of the red-gray chips. I'll show you the gray side in a minute. You see the red side. There's also a lot of spheres that happen to be magnetic in the dust. These are iron-rich spheres, uh, very typically. There are some other silicon-rich spheres which are interesting. By the way, to melt iron requires a temperature of about 2800 Fahrenheit. There's a lot of these. Of course, there are other sources so besides uh, just uh, thermite. So uh, it's not the strongest evidence, but nevertheless, there are a lot of these spheres. The strong evidence comes from the unreacted uh, chips themselves, as we'll see soon. Hold on. So I observed these in June 2007. Here's a uh, chip on edge. Now you can see the red layer and the shiny black-gray layer. If you look closely here at this chip, you can pick that out too, but this is probably the best one. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Ferrer at BYU who oriented a chip so that you can see it edge on and see these two layers. Some of the chips have more than two layers. Most of them have two. What is this stuff? When I saw it early on I thought well I don't know maybe it's just you know paint. That'd be my first guess. But uh, early guess but we'll see. Uh, This is uh, the Electron Microscope Lab. Um, I, I just have to tell you real quickly Dr. Fair did a great deal of work and service here. He's a director of the uh, TEM lab, the Transmission Electron Microscopy Lab, an expert in in all this equipment. This is a scanning electron microscope we use mostly. Uh, Jeff is now using TEM to study these samples further uh, where he can. This is Niels Herrett. He is quite outspoken. He became the first author. Jeff was the first author for a long time on this paper, but... um, I'm going to tell you that story just quickly because it's a human interest story and also a science story. So Jeff is at UC, Jeff Fair, Department of Physics and Astronomy, BYU, in Utah. And Danny Farnsworth, uh, descendant of Philo T. Farnsworth, by the way, relative of his, the TV inventor, you know. He is also at uh, BYU Physics Department, there, Physics and Astronomy. Anyway, so Jeff, uh, before publishing, he said, I better uh, check with uh, you know, the chair of the department. <laughs> he gave the department uh, chair a copy of this paper. Anyway, the chair read it, and then uh, Jeff was called before the dean's office. I'm going to tell you, as he told me, he said, they did not want to see this paper published at all. Now, this is a dean and his three associates, deans. And... Jeff, you know, saying, why is that? And uh, let's explain this, and please tell me why. And they didn't really have any good (laughs) reasons. The chair, the next day, stood up for it. He said, this is science. You can't just squash publication. You know, think of Galileo. I don't know what arguments the chair used, but that was his argument. It's science. You have to let it be published. And he felt it was good science. He did make some recommendations. Um, There were some comments that we had made about the implications that were removed from the paper. So it's a really strictly a strictly a scientific treatise. And uh, then it was approved by the chair. He told me privately that he was convinced by this paper, which I hope you will read, that there were indeed explosives in the World Trade Center towers on 9-11. Now I hope that that you know motivates you. This is a good guy. He's a new chair since I left. I wish he'd been there when I was, you know, going through my struggles. A great guy, good physicist, solid scientist. Um, I could tell you a little more, but that's probably more than I should have said already. So, but anyway, the the, up, the upshot was though was that the chair uh, did not feel that Jeff should be first author. That might cause problems with his career, his job, and so Jeff uh, ha- had. Already been thinking about that, and he was second author. I didn't feel good about being before Jeff, and so I requested being third author, and that left Niels, <laughs> who had been third author, as the first author, which turns out to be a good move. Niels is uh, in the Department of Chemistry Professor Herrett at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, and he's been doing interviews. Europe is it seems to, the media seems to be more open to considering this subject seriously, and when you publish a paper. You put your reputation on the line. You say, this is what we found, and here's what we found it. And you can replicate it, and we invite you to replicate it or challenge us, whatever, you know. That's science, okay? Then the Europeans seem to pay more attention, as my observation. The media seems to be a little more open there. For example, he has been, Niels Herrett has been on TV and uh, other interviews. In Paris, he gave a talk, for example, and so on.
0: You're listening to physicist Dr. Stephen Jones. Today's show, Ground Zero Evidence of High-Tech Explosives. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: Let's go on to the science, son. Huh? Yeah. So here's what we observe, the same observation optically, very close in all four samples. And as you'll see, that continues. So it's an internal check on these collectors, you know, the same uh, observations. And frankly, if you look in the lungs of some of these survivors, I think you will find uh, some of these uh, same chips. Not sure how long they remain in the body, though that's a question beyond... If we look at higher magnification than we can do with an optical microscope, this is a scanning electron microscope. We see the red layer here. It starts to have some interesting little white dots in it. The gray layer looks quite homogeneous. This is what the gray layer looks like under analysis with an electron beam. So here's what we do. This is called X-ray energy dispersive spectroscopy. Please make a note of that. It will be on the quiz. (laughs) And uh, these peaks represent uh, elements present. Let's start with oxygen, it has just one peak, <laughs> carbon, one peak. So um, what happens is you're hitting the sample, so in this case the red layer, with a beam of electrons. It excites the atoms, and then they give off characteristic X-rays. And those characteristic X-rays show up at a certain energy. Oh, yeah, the scale is 1,000 electron volts. And so, characteristic x-rays for oxygen are here, and it's easy to pick out the oxygen peak. The higher the peak, the more the oxygen, okay? Uh, Carbon, there's a little bit of carbon possibly here. Uh, Iron has more than one peak shown, but it's just, I mean, it's just iron. The reason you see more than one peak, this is the K-alpha peak, this is the L-peak for example, and it just has to do with details of how x-rays are produced. Okay, that's a gray layer. Here's a red layer. Very interesting. i mean, just thrilling to a scientist. Look at the size of the carbon peak now. Uh, enormous. This is not just an artifact or background. It's very large. Uh, the oxygen peak is uh, very clear. Uh, aluminum and silicon. Hmm, Let's look at this one. This has, you know, Less carbon, so the others look relatively larger. Aluminum and silicon, clearly there, and iron. Now, when I saw this, I'm thinking, what? <laughs> iron, <laughs> aluminum, iron, oxygen. Who? Anybody else say something? Gunpowder? Thermite? Gunpowder, no. But thermite, is uh, the signature, is aluminum, iron, and oxygen. Uh, iron oxide and aluminum. That makes a thermite, which we'll talk about. So, I just wanted to see, you know, who knew much about where we're learning, right? But you can see those essential elements are there. But then there's this pesky silicon. What's that there for? And this big peak of carbon. I was puzzled. I, uh, I flat didn't know what those would be doing there. Yeah, it can't be thermite because you know what's the carbon doing there? And the, I mean, maybe it is paint. You'd have some carbon, but uh, what's the uh, silicon doing there along with aluminum? I, Oh, by the way, no manganese to speak of. The uh, nominal composition of A36 steel as in the towers has about 1%, 0.8 to 1.2% manganese, MN. I don't see a manganese peak. It would be right there. Not there. You shouldn't see if it were there. And we've looked at lots of these uh, red chips now. By the way, what Jeff Ferrer did is he Broke open the red chip. See, the dust from the World Trade Center collapse It's just full of elements. You've got titanium. You've got calcium um, because the wallboard. Uh, and you see some calcium. This could be a little bit of contamination, even though he broke open a fresh surface. You know that dust gets around. He broke it open in air, you see, for example. Um, you've got, uh, I don't know, chromium, all sorts of just lots of... Uh, Uh, elements, but when you crack open to get a fresh surface, you see the dominant elements here, quite clean. Um, Here you can pick them out easily, carbon, oxygen, aluminum, silicon, and iron, okay? No zinc, please notice that, no zinc. Why is that important? I'll show you. (laughs) No manganese. This is not uh, from the steel of the building somehow, combining with aluminum in the building, because then you would have manganese, you see? Yeah, manganese from the steel, it's not there. No zinc, and that is important. Here's why. I'll try to go through this a little quickly. This is from uh, Appendix D of the of a NIST report, the NIST report on the tower's demise. And if you look at the composition of the primer paint, that was one of our, you know, considerations. You see that there is zinc, yellow, included a lot of it. What is that? Twenty percent, uh, approximately. 20%. So, a lot of zinc, and in the pigment there is also zinc, magnesium, and so on. This is the tenemic paint used in the World Trade Center 7, as reported by NIST. You know, this is just fact, okay. But where's the zinc? There's lots of zinc in the primer paint. There's no zinc in this red material. Huh? Soaking the chip in a strong paint solvent, known as methyl ethyl ketone, M-E-K, did not dissolve the chip ha, no zinc, and now this, <laughs> you know, it's not looking like paint, folks. And that's why, that's why I soaked uh, the chip initially, had several uh, uh, finally um, in the methyl ethyl ketone was to see if they would dissolve. And then I soaked paint samples as well, and they did show uh, dissolution, dissolving, and uh, very much limpness in these paint samples in the MEK. That's what it's for. It's a paint solvent. Whereas this uh, material, and here's photos after the soaking, it's very interesting. The red surface swelled, and you can see now porosity. And if you look closely, you'll see a red region, which is rich in iron oxide and silicon oxide. Then you see some other regions which are more silvery colored, and the carbon is swept out too. Let me show you the data rather than trying to explain it with my hands. <laughs> I like data. So this is post MEK soaking, 55 hours with some agitation. We see regions of separation. The silicon has been separated from the aluminum. We're tiny aluminum peak, huge silicon and oxygen peaks. Silica, silicon uh, oxide, and here you see aluminum again in a different region we found, with, with a uh, small oxygen peak. Here there's enough oxygen to oxidize the silicon. Here there is not enough oxygen to oxidize all of the aluminum. When you have small particles of aluminum you, in air, you typically get a surface coating very quickly, actually, of aluminum oxide, which protects the inside aluminum from getting oxidized. Uh, passivation, I believe, is the term. And uh, Jeff Ferrer, is an expert working with these uh, machines now for years, um, verified there's too much aluminum for it all to be oxidized here. On the other hand, the iron, which is enriched in another region, shows a very large oxygen peak, and there was plenty of oxygen to oxidize all of the iron. See, so again, uh, th- mm, thermite, well just remember that, aluminum, at least some, Elemental aluminum, probably quite a lot. It's a little hard to quantify with this method. Uh, Jeff is working on the TEM to pin that down for you. But Elemental aluminum, very strongly evidenced here. Iron oxide, again, very strongly evidenced. Those are the components of thermite. Thermite, you mix aluminum powder and iron oxide powders. The finer the powder, the faster it burns. Okay. And anyway, you mix those together and you heat it up enough. Uh, uh, That's another factor. The finer the powder, the lower temperature is required to get it to ignite. The result of this chemical reaction is that the oxygen transfers over to the aluminum. We say the iron oxide is reduced. The aluminum is oxidized to form aluminum oxide, which is the white plume you see here drifting away and molten iron, the yellow, white, hot uh, molten iron that you see. In other words, there's a great deal of energy released in this reaction. Temperatures upwards of 3,000 centigrade. Um, uh, These sparks that you see coming off molten iron, you see, as you, okay, if I spray water in the air, it forms what? Droplets, Droplets, good. (laughs) They're more or less spherical. And that's because surface tension pulls the liquid into a sphere. It does the same thing with iron. If you, as you see here, eject molten iron into the air, it will form globules and droplets. small ones will form pretty good, decent spheres. And then that's how you get spheres. So if you see a a spherical um, iron, in, in the dust after it's cooled. You say, well, this has got to be molten at one time. I mean, nobody's in there carving out little spheres, right? This just forms by nature. And this is how you can do it with the thermitic reaction. Okay, now, let's go back. We go to still higher magnification. Jeff did this for the first time. Uh, 50,000 power here using a scanning electron microscope. Look, you're a scientist. You say, I want to see the you know, hard data and detailed explanation. Please read the paper. Obviously, I can't cover all of that. I could read the paper to you, but it's 25 pages long. (laughs) And some of you might get bored if I did that, so I won't. But these grains that you see here, these uh, faceted grains, the uh, brighter grains, are iron oxide, rich in iron oxide. And the plates that you see here, which are about 40 nanometers thick, are rich in aluminum. And there's uh, silicon silicon and oxygen as well. It's a very interesting structure. And then you see this carbon-rich stuff, this uh, matrix this, uh, surrounding it. And that's what's eaten out by the MEK, clearly, as you then separate aluminum from silicon and uh, iron oxide from the other materials. It's really uh, and, the, and the carbon uh, comes out and is depleted after the uh, soak in MEK. Very interesting. I'm glad we did that MEK. And the reason was because we wanted to see if the stuff would dissolve. You know, it didn't, but it separated out. We got a bonus. It's, uh, I guess, serendipity. Uh, The uh, grains here, the iron oxide grains, are about 100 nanometers across. And again, Jeff is using TEM to refine this to determine what oxide. We're not real sure which of the iron oxides. It looks like Fe2O3, but we need, we'd like to pin that down. It, it turns out it's not real important for our argument here, which is that there is iron oxide. <laughs> and then the thermite reaction can proceed with aluminum. Oh, plus the organic. This is high carbon material out here. It's not random building stuff mixed together. Because of the uniformity, for example, of the particles, the grains that have the iron oxide... And, of course, the uniformity of these plates, which we see in other uh, images as well, uh, containing the aluminum. Now, here's something I'd like you to understand. Thermite, conventional thermite. Uh, you can buy it on eBay. Huh? Not necessarily recommending that you do, but you can. <laughs> it's not a secret. I'm not telling the terrorists. You know, that's what this guy Martin, by the way, said. You can't talk about thermite. He threatened me with legal action if I talked about thermite and sent that to the BYU administrators. And I said, look, Martin, get serious. You can buy this stuff on eBay. I'm not revealing state secrets here. (laughs) Now, nanothermite, you cannot buy on eBay, mind you. Uh, But uh, it's also published, so it's not a state secret. But anyway, the uh, ultrafine form, which is when you get down to about 100 nanometers for at least one of the components iron oxide or aluminum, then that's called nanothermite, also called superthermite. And here you have, have a picture. This is from the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, not too far from here. And uh, this is uh, an image, again, taken with electron microscope. They've made the iron oxide green and the aluminum red. You see they're not... I mean, the mixing is quite good here. It's called... Uh, uh, you know, preparing this for uh, action and when you heat it up they actually show a photo of super thermite exploding so this is ultra fine grains right tiny tiny and that is explosive you can actually tailor it but it, sorry I should not say it can be explosive if you want me to be it can be fast explosive slow explosive and so on but wait we still got carbon and silicon dang where are those coming from Hmm, well, we'll find out. One of the things we did is to look for spheres produced. These uh, happen to be iron rich spheres when they're metallic and shiny that we found in abundance after we heated this red material to ignition. So we got it to go off. I'll show you some more data on this how this stuff ignites. But the point is, we see spheres rich in iron. Look at Oxygen down now. Iron's much more than the oxygen. It turned out if you, if you quantify this, it's not an exact feature, but uh, again, as uh, Jeff looked at the quantification, we have more iron than oxygen after the reaction than before. See, here we've got iron oxide, lots of oxygen. Now the iron has been reduced, we say in chemistry. The oxygen has been taken up by something presumably the aluminum, and so what we have then, this is a very important test, iron, not all of it's oxidized after the reaction. And furthermore, you have spheres that form. There were no spheres of this size, these are one micron or larger that you can see here, this 50 micron bar, no spheres one micron or larger before the reaction. We did this several times, and yet a lot of these iron-rich spheres after I mean, folks, we nailed this. This stuff is a thermitic reaction. It's a thermitic material. And we know the temperature at which reacts. I'm getting there. But uh, let me show you some. This is another sphere from the uh, red chip ignition. We see often aluminum and silicon and iron in these spheres. Sometimes we see some that are very rich in iron. just want to emphasize this is in the paper. You also see... Uh, spheres that have aluminum and silicon as well, as you'd expect from the thermitic reactions. You've got aluminum and silicon in this red material. Sometimes the spheres capture some of that uh, aluminum. Notice the aluminum now is reduced. In the red chips, it's almost always that the aluminum and silicon are close to equal. I'm not quite sure why. It's how they were fabricated. But after reaction, the aluminum is reduced. Uh, We're presuming that the aluminum oxide, a lot of it goes off then in this effluent. This now is from, these are spheres found in the World Trade Center dust. Written another paper on that. And you. it's in the uh, Journal of 9-11 Studies. So it's uh, evidence for extremely high temperatures. Uh, that paper, I don't remember the full title, but you can Google on high temperatures. Journal of 9-11 Studies, you'll find it. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, we find a lot of these spheres in the dust that are rich in iron. And look at... We find a lot of them have iron and aluminum and silicon. Folks, that's a very unusual combination in molten metal in the dust from the World Trade Center. Where else did it come from than from a reaction, as we have here, from the ignition of these red chips? But again, that's not central to the argument. Um, it's, it's important. But what's central to the argument is these red chips are thermitic. I'm just am trying to give you some more of the data that can uh, be followed up on. Commercial thermite is in the paper as well, both of these. There's, again, the spheres from the dust. This is from commercial thermite. John Perulis here. Um, Again, this is the coarse thermite, but uh, it had silicon in it. I was rather surprised, but that's the way it came from the manufacturer. And you see in the spheres from commercial thermite, which he collected, John collected this residue then we looked at the spheres. We see these spheres are very much like what we see in the World Trade Center dust. This is known thermite. This is spheres from the World Trade Center dust. How do you get so many spheres in the dust that have iron and aluminum and silicon if it's not from thermite? See? That's additional information pointing to the use of thermite. Let me say that there could be two types of, at least two, you know, the very fine, ultra-fine thermite that we see in the red-gray chips as well as uh, ordinary conventional thermite. That's quite possible in the towers.
0: You're listening to physicist Dr. Stephen Jones. Today's show, ground zero evidence of high-tech explosives. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: Okay. We're going to talk now about nanothermite also called superthermite from published literature. It's in the public domain. A lot of this research is done by the uh, defense uh, laboratories for the uh, Department of Defense and so on. But this is in the public literature. I'm not telling any secrets here. It's out there. You can read it. <laughs> we quote it in our paper. You can go to the references and read all about nanothermite. Some of you will want to do that. OK. Uh, This is from 2000, April, publication. That means they've been working on this for some time before that. And, of course, it's before 9-11-2001, over a year. Energetic nanocomposites of iron oxide and metallic aluminum, they discuss in the paper. The compositions are stable, safe, and can be readily ignited. Uh Aha. I still want to know about silicon and carbon, though. Where are those coming? We'll find out. Here we go. Energetic nanocomposites are a class of material that have both a fuel, aluminum, and oxidizer, iron oxide, for example, or other oxidizers possible. Intimately mixed, and where at least one of the component phases meets the size definition. And typically, as uh, I see in the literature, that is about 120 nanometers. One of the components has to be less than that. turns out that the grains of iron oxide are already less than that, about hundred nanometers. Jeff will pinpoint that in the TEM. I hope that that gets published. (laughs) He's a little worried about being able. Anyway, that's another story. Someone will do the TEM, we'll get that nailed. The exact diameter. And of course the aluminum in these uh, uh, plates, very curious plates that are about 40 nanometers thick. Here is a EDS map that was done by Jeff. And uh, this shows SEM image, the electron microscope image, because you can see a lot of these little grains that are rich in iron. We know that because here's the iron, so we have these other elements too. This is before separation, Uh, but it does look like they're intimately mixed. The iron and aluminum is what I'm getting at here. The oxygen associates with uh, carbon and with silicon and with iron, and so it's a little hard to figure out where the oxygen resides from this map before MEK soaking. Uh, thank you for your patience, but you're, you're not ready to go yet because we don't know where the silicon and the carbon, you know, where are those coming from? <laughs> okay, <laughs> read on. This, oh, this is a little different topic, but uh, here we go. The salt gel process, this is the Livermore report, uh, is very amenable to dip, spin, and spray coating technologies to coat surfaces uh, dip coat various substrates to make sol gel, iron oxide, aluminum, Viton. Aha, carbon, organic. Uh, there's your carbon coming in. <clears> hmm, <throat> why do they add Viton? We'll see. But anyway, there you see the carbon coming in. The energetic coating dries to give a nice adherent film. Gosh, that sounds like just what we've got—a nice adherent film, a paint, but an explosive paint. <laughs> This is not like ordinary paint, folks. Uh, This stuff is, uh, I will show you, very highly energetic. Uh, A little more from the GASH report, April 2000, Livermore Laboratory. The nature of wet nanocomposites affords an additional degree of safety. The wet pyrotechnic nanocomposites cannot be ignited until the drying process is complete. This property should allow the production of a large quantity of the pyrotechnics that can be stored safely for some time and dried shortly before its use. Why? You could have somebody go in and paint this on. Uh, he would just think it's ordinary paint, probably rather thick, and it would be quite safe until it dried. See. Then it's very dangerous. <laughs> okay. Okay, now silicon. Here's a 2004 report where we learn about how this silicon works. That doesn't mean they hadn't been studying it before, but this is where they discuss it that I found. By introducing a fuel metal such as aluminum into the metal oxide-silicon oxide matrix, energetic materials based on thermite reactions can be fabricated. Here's your silicon part of the matrix to hold these things. Organic additives can be Okay, what's that for? This carbon. For those of you who know a little chemistry, the organic refers to a carbon um, presence. Organic additives can cause the generation of gas upon ignition of the materials, therefore resulting in a composite material that can perform pressure volume work like explosion, cutting action, that's the sort of thing that you, you can get by adding an organic because you generate gas, you see, expansion, rapid and destructive if you design it that way. Here we go. So they talk then about a method of making nanostructured energetic materials, specifically explosives, propellants, and pyrotechnics. Notice they include explosives in that list. Again, this is in the public domain as I read a little more about this. Sol-gel method allows for the addition of insoluble materials, for example, metals or polymers, again, carbon-bearing polymers, to the viscous sol, just before gelation, to produce a uniformly distributed and energetic nanocomposite upon gelation. So you have, then, these thin films, possible thin films of the hybrid inorganic-organic-energetic nanocomposite. Hence... Aluminum, iron oxide, carbon, and silicon, part of the matrix. I'll come back then to the argument of how much there is. But it boils down to, uh, I estimate, right around nine tons of the unexploded material in the dust. Now, why did I say this stuff is, uh, you know, it behaves like an explosive? Okay, what Jeff did is he ran the chips in a differential scanning calorimeter. I suggested it. Jeff did the work. You know, it's a great team. I love this. <laughs> but the fact is, Jeff said, "You know, Steve, if if you tell them you want to run a material from the World Trade Center in a DSC, you know, at at the university, no, they're not going to let you do it." So, so he did it. Bless his heart. And here's what we see. We have to know how it behaves when it ignites. Okay, that's it. that's really important and i showed you already the result that you get these iron rich spheres produced that implies a very high temperature all right so we already have data that there's a high chemical reaction now how did we how did jeff ignite these he heated the material slowly this is temperature in centigrade to 700 degrees centigrade and stopped now uh, iron melts at uh, see help me on this uh, is 15 or 1535 right Uh, centigrade. So it's well below the melting point. This is not how you melt iron. It's not anywhere near hot enough. But, in fact, it would uh, be damaging to the instrument if you heat it to that high uh, 1535, I should think. But uh, there's a peak here at right about 430 uh, centigrade. And we did this four times, as reported in the uh, paper. And each time, the ignition point is... uh, close to this temperature. Now, the red curve, this is interesting. This is known nanothermite published by Livermore. Not classified information. And this is the result that they got. We followed their experimental conditions so that we could compare apples with apples, which is to say we ran then just as they did in air and at 10 degrees centigrade per minute heating. This nice narrow peak that they got, indicates the thermite reaction. We have an even narrower peak. The narrower the peak, the faster the reaction has occurred. And furthermore, if you integrate this, I actually uh, think these are close to the same energy, if I remember correctly. But other peaks that we got with the uh, uh, red-gray chips are larger. Uh, There's one about a factor of two larger than the theoretical maximum for thermite, ordinary thermite. It's interesting. It would suggest to us that the uh, the organic material in these chips is also itself uh, a very energetic material. That needs to be sorted out. But the energy is, has been measured. You integrate the area under the curve to get the kilojoules per gram. For those of you that uh, want to do that, it's uh, not too hard. <laughs> okay. Point is, this is a very narrow exotherm, and it's at a low temperature. Now, what happens if you do ordinary thermite? Shown here in this paper by Gash et al., again, Livermore. This is uh, ordinary thermite ignites around 900 centigrade. Nanothermite ignites, in their case, around uh, 550. Again, the finer the thermite, and there could be other factors, the lower the temperature of ignition. This is another big difference between Conventional thermite which ignites above 800 centigrade and nanothermite which ignites typically at a, an appreciably lower temperature just as we see in the red-gray chips, the blue curve. Lower temperature, narrow exotherm uh, by comparison under the same conditions as best we could from uh, Tillotson. Jeff contacted Tillotson, that's this paper, Tillotson et al., the red curve and discuss the conditions so we could match those as best we could. A lot of energy, folks. Narrow exotherm, that's very important because that means a very rapid reaction.
0: You're listening to physicist Dr. Stephen Jones. Today's show, ground zero evidence of high-tech explosives. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: Now, this is a review briefly. This is like no paint you've ever seen, <laughs> this red material. Ordinary paint dissolves in MEK. This material does not, even after 55 hours with agitation. Resistivity is lower than we found published for paints. That's some data, it's not maybe the strongest, but there are some additional data. We did that measurement uh, attracted by a magnet, which is kind of unusual. I don't know of any paint that does that, but here are the crucial data then, along with the lack of dissolving. Uh, carbon, silicon, oxygen, iron, and elemental aluminum found in the red material. That would be interesting to find that combination in a paint without zinc, magnesium, titanium, or chromium. Yeah. Be interested to see any paint that, as I pointed out, the uh, primer paint used on the steel in the World Trade Center did have zinc. So that rules that out for this material. The faceted grains are quite uniform and the aluminum in plate-like structures, 40 nanometers thick. This is actually uh, looking like a fairly highly engineered uh, material, if you, if you think about all these features. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, the narrowness of the peak in the DSC test, ignition at low temperature. By the way, we did ignite paint. Jeff ignited some paint in the DSC. The exotherm, it does burn, and it's just a broad... Um, exotherm. You know, this is narrow. You saw the blue peak. The paint is very broad. I didn't have it available, unfortunately. Uh, it's traveling, but I need to get that from Jeff or something. But it's very broad. I've seen it. It's about ten times broader, as I looked at that with uh, uh, Jeff, too, uh, than the exotherm that we see with this red material. And, of course, the production of these spheres. Oh, yeah, the uniformity, I think, is a very important point, Applying it engineered material. We did controls. Uh, we looked at the dust from the collapse of, this is in the paper, the Stardust Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, which was demolished using conventional explosives, 2007. The Key Bank also demolished with uh, conventional explosives, and uh, Danny Farnsworth and I looked. We found no red-gray chips whatsoever. Now, you, you can see in the paper, uh, Uh, a small amount, what was it, about uh, 5 grams, had some 60 of these, you see, and to find none in larger quantities than in these controls is uh, significant. In other words, you can't just get it by bringing a building down, even though it's got steel and aluminum in it. You don't get this uh, highly engineered structure with carbon, mind you, (laughs) it's in there. Um, This is from an April 2001 conference. Again, before 9-11, and they say, uh, the, it's interesting. There is a session discussing this. Uh, okay, work on this field. It's roughly 10 years old, so that would put you back to uh, 1991, well before uh, 9-11, 2001, but well after the construction of the buildings. Okay, <clears throat> this is well after the buildings were constructed. In 1970s, early 70s, the buildings were built, so this is more recent than that, by decades. The unique properties of nanomaterials that have potential to be used in energetic formulations for advanced explosives. Hold on, I got some more really interesting stuff in this, in this AMTIAC report. Uh, Department of Defense information talking about this. Here's a figure out of that report, applications of this uh, material. And they talk about uh, munitions, they talk about thermobaric uses here. Thermobaric, thermobaric, and then they talk about a shaped charge using this uh, nano-composite, right? A shaped charge you can build with this. That's what is required, folks, to uh, cut through steel. This is an example of a conventional linear charge on steel. When you set that off, which can be done with a radio signal, uh, then you know, remotely. You don't have to string a bunch of uh, cables or something to do this. You can set it off with a radio signal, small radio receiver, picks that up and bam, explodes its way through steel. That's the nature of shaped charges. Uh, Here's a chip found by Kevin Ryan in his sample obtained independently and you notice this is an interesting one because it has globules. It looks like this has reacted in the center of this chip. It's very unusual but I just wanted to show you that found this and this shows a, it looks like a partial reaction uh, one of the thoughts that uh, co-author Frank Legge had is that the thin chips survived there could have been much thicker material present but it reacted and then the thin chips could have been quenched for one reason or another and survived with only partial reaction as you see here okay how do you make this stuff this is again from the Amtiac publication This report, uh, this shows uh, synthesizing nanoscale aluminum for these applications. This is at a naval uh, facility, an Indian head. It's very complicated. It's not trivial to make large quantities of this nanoscale aluminum. Mm -hmm. This was done in 1999, this plant for producing large-scale quantities of this. I'm not saying it's the only place in the world, but... um, one of the professors involved in this a development at this naval facility said it was the only facility uh, i mean it was the first is the way he put it so i I guess but you know i don 't know when you know russia china israel iran uh, uh, some cave in Afghanistan has one of these, no doubt you know <laughs> get serious, please, for a minute you know okay, and of course, once you got the uh, uh, ultrafine grain aluminum, you still have to put it together with the ultrafine grain um, iron oxide and the carbon. And that's not trivial. And so here's some equipment to do that, for putting these these uh, nano energetic and nanoscale materials together to make this uh, explosive, such as nanothermite. Here's the calculation. I want to get to a few questions if I can. So I, I go through this argument um, of how much there is in the dust. We, we did a measurement. We estimate it came out to about a tenth of a percent. But This is unseparated dust. Uh, let me show you this. This is uh, from the McKinley dust. You see large chunks of concrete. Well, we separated out the fine component before that. And I estimated it roughly a factor of three from the sample that we had. It may be actually less than that as I look at this uh, again, but the sample, that as it came to us from Jeanette, uh, you can sieve this, and that will be the way to refine this estimate. It's so down by a factor of three. The estimate of the amount of dust is 90,000 tons. I'm not sure of that again, but we're trying to make an estimate here. So that gives you about 27 tons of red-gray material, and then the red layer is about a third of the mass, and so that gets you down to about nine tons of this active thermitic material. But still, that's a lot. And to manufacture that then before September 2001, we should be able to trace who, who did this, who made this stuff, and, uh, and why. See, that's the goal here. So in conclusion, we found a very energetic, highly engineered, explosive material in the World Trade Center dust. In the words of uh, Niels Heret, it should not have been in the World Trade Center buildings. (laughs) The question then is who made the stuff? And why has NIST refused to even look for World Trade Center uh, residues, explosive residues in the dust? Also, USGS has, we know that they have samples from the World Trade Center. Will they look now for these explosive materials? I want to say that details of exactly how they use this to destroy can be learned once we determine who made this material in multi-ton quantities. We need a subpoena power, you see, to determine who. Then we can find out the detail of how. Was it painted on? Was it used in super thermite matches, which is discussed in the paper, or, or some other way? See, the science just tells me, look, you've got this explosive material. It's unexploded. It's still there in the dust. Now find out who made it. You know, that's what it's asking me to do. It's like whispering. was is it? Isaiah. The, the dead whisper from the dust. I'm sorry. It's rather, It just came to mind. I'm saying, whoa, they're whispering. Uh, you find out now who made this stuff. <laughs> okay. But seriously, I would very much like to know who made that. When you find uh, an accelerant... Including thermite. In this particular, uh, this was in uh, Alabama, churches uh, on fire, set on fire using thermite. They found the residue. They knew there was a crime. They were able to trace who put the thermite in these churches and, of course, uh, prosecute these criminals. That's what we want to do here. We require then, uh, see, you do the science, you do the forensics, and you say, whoa, there's explosives there. You know, NIST didn't look. They should have, but okay, we looked. There's explosives there. Now, now we need the other arm. We need the criminal investigation to determine who did it, and why. We need the subpoena power to find out who. Oh, I do support this initiative because the New York City can referendum, which would form a uh, an investigative commission. Okay. I also support an independent prosecutor to determine who made the red material. <laughs> okay, so let me just uh, conclude with that. My sense is that uh, finding out the truth about 9 11 is the key to peace. Uh, as, you, as you trace what came out of that and the wars that were justified based on 9 11, then you say, wait, there's more to it. Yeah? It's not these uh, uh, Muslim hijackers that made this high-tech uh, material in multi-ton quantities and got it into the towers. No, Somebody else. Let's find out who. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Dr. Stephen Jones. Today's show has been ground-zero evidence of high-tech explosives. Dr. Stephen Jones became a founding member and co-chair of Scholars for 9-11 Truth. In December 2006, after leaving that organization with about three-quarters of its members, he became a founding member of Scholars for 9-11 Truth and Justice, a group of scholars and supporters dedicated to 9-11 research using the scientific method. Visit the Scholars for 9 11 Truth and Justice website at www.stj911.org. That's stj, the number's 911.org. Dr. Jones is co editor, along with Kevin Ryan, of the Journal for 9 11 Studies, a peer reviewed, open access, electronic only journal covering the whole of research related to the events of 11 September 2001. Visit the journal's website at www.journalof911studies.com. That's journal of the numbers 911studies.com. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510 848 6767, extension 628, or email us at BLFaulkner at yahoo.com. That's BLFAULKNER at yahoo.com. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction.
1: Out with a spirit snake trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what this
0: side just for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me?